Well, let me uh, turn this over to Marty Grubbs because I think he wants to introduce you to our distinguished panelists this evening. Yes, they are distinguished. And um, you, you've had beauty and brains, me and Terry, and um, <laughs> in that order. So tonight you get both uh, with these, these three. Uh, we have a phenomenal counseling staff. I talk about them all the time. Uh, I don't know that you all are, are probably completely aware of just how uh, special these folks are, how uh, extremely talented they are. Yeah, you got some fans out here. <clears throat> well, if we're going to be that transparent, who all has been to counseling? <laughs> <clears throat> um, but these are professionals. Uh, they are professionals in their field of counseling. They're uh, outstanding followers of Jesus Christ and they're treasured members of our staff. And this is part of our discipleship here at Crossings. We, we find, and I say this a lot of times uh, to these, these folks, that a lot of people come through our doors uh, with hearts so hardened, it's tough to even begin to introduce Jesus to them or for them to open those hearts. And uh, many times for a brand new person of the church, these folks and, and some others on the team, not all the team is sitting here, but. Uh, they help begin to soften hearts that have been hardened by tough things in life so the gospel can penetrate that heart. And that's very much an important step. And uh, this was a dream in, of mine 30 years ago uh, in, in ministry when we started. So anyway, God has been good to us, and you now have the benefit tonight of hearing from them. We're going to talk sex, and it's going to get really interesting and we're going to be honest and uh <laughs> you all okay yeah he's already laughing <clears throat> so i'm on the end so i can make a quicker getaway and um you're already turning red yeah Mario, just just <laughs> thought of it it just starts getting hot here okay all right so let me pray for us let's do that and then uh, we'll we'll get started father we thank you so much for your love for us we thank you that we see your love demonstrated in the way you created us uniquely in your image we see your love demonstrated, particularly as we uh, come to this uh, time of year where we start thinking about the birth of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that demonstration of love. Tonight, Father, we're here to celebrate how you have made us and to get more in tune with your idea of what our lives are supposed to look like in every area. And we ask you to guide us. We ask you to speak to us and through us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes we think that there's a biblical perspective and then there's a psychological perspective, as though those two things are in two different worlds, and I suppose they can be, but I know that's not the case with Ron and Sherry and Todd and the way they see the therapy is very integrated. So I thought I'd kick off before I get into the questions, Ron, and just ask you about to kind of frame up this idea of sexuality for us as you see it, both as a therapist and as a Christ follower. I think that this series has driven home for me uh, the importance that when we talk about our sexuality, and you know, the Bible is just, as we have learned, is not afraid to discuss it. It's not afraid to reveal its issues and its challenges, and it's not afraid to instruct us in it. And what that drove home for me was the need when we start to talk about a sexuality is go to the meta, go to the overarching, to reach for and realize that when we are talking about our sexuality and the practicalities of how we're going to walk this out is to touch the sacred in it, that our sexuality is a sacred gift. 
And when I think about sexuality from that perspective of the sacred, then I think for me, my paradigm immediately moves toward what we would call a biblical perspective because I'm looking at the God breath in who I am sexually as a human being. And that leads me to this concept that I've been mulling over, sexual stewardship. We talk about stewardship in often referencing to our money and maybe time and our servanthood, but what do we talk about sexual stewardship? Because who we are sexually is integrated deeply in God's design of us uh, as his creation. So I want to approach that from a stewardship perspective. That immediately puts me up here because I'm, I'm touching the sacred when I conceptualize that way. So no matter what I'm dealing with, talking about, uh, thought life, uh, dealing it in relationship, what I'm looking for is how am I going to keep the sacred in the middle of what I am dealing with in this moment? Well, let me just dive right in and throw out our first question. This is an issue that is of epidemic proportions in our society, a, a problem, but also affects the church in a really significant way. So let me throw out to you guys this question. Is pornography really harmful? Is there really anything wrong with that? What are your thoughts on pornography? A couple of thoughts on pornography. Uh, one is that pornography is nothing that's new. It's, it's been around since we have, you know, history of uh, civilization. It shows up in artifacts. Um, pornography has been an issue that's reflective of our struggle with dealing with our sexuality. Um, it's interesting that, you know, some of the things that have changed in the last decade, uh, one being the internet, and, and one of the main components that has really thrust pornography into a much higher level of impact in our society, relationships, marriages, uh, it affects all, you know, married people, single people alike, um, is the access that we now have to pornography. Um, so when we think about what are the different elements of pornography that really begin to erode uh, us as, as humans, to erode um, our spiritual walk, to erode the attachment and healthy connection and relationships, we can first start to look at when we begin to, and I'm going to use a word that's it's a really powerful word, it's an important word, and it's a word that we all need to wrestle with. Pornography engages objectifying others. And what objectifying means is that we turn other people into an object, and objects are meant to serve a singular purpose, which is meant to meet my needs. As soon as I turn somebody else into an object, they're no longer a person. And so pornography pulls us out of a relational interaction uh, with another person, which interestingly enough, and this is from some of the secular research that's been done, so it's, it's not coming from a religious institution or anything like that, um, has, has shown in, in the last 10 years a correlation between this study specifically, men that are engaging in pornography on a regular basis actually begin to show a decrease in the relational aspects of sex in their intimate relationships with others. And basically what that is telling us is the more that people begin to engage in pornography um, or other types of sexual proclivities, uh, it begins to detach them from the human relationship that we believe God has designed to bring about growth and health and healing and positive things in our life. So it becomes a pretty significant uh, wall uh, for people as we begin to try and grow and work through the issues. Another thing I think is important when we think about pornography. Pornography is often utilized um, as 
as a way of coping with the stress of reality. Okay, so people will go to pornography because it feels good, it's a stress relief, they don't have to deal with their day-to-day struggles or trials or whatever. Um, and basically the dynamic that this sets up is in order for me to cope with the stresses of reality, I have to go to fantasy. And that is always a short-term fix for a long-term problem and it never works. Because in order for that to continue working, I have to continue to go um, to kind of fantasy land to cope with this stuff. Another reason why that's important and, and interesting is, and I think Ron, you were kind of talking about this earlier today, um, issues with pornography and, and acting out in sexually unhealthy ways almost always involves an increase in behavioral action. Okay, so what used to stimulate will no longer stimulate. Okay, we become callous to it, so we need more. And this, when you look at people that have, you know, have a, a di- meet diagnostic criteria for sexual addiction, you, you almost always will see this in their history, that their sexual acting out started maybe in a mild manner, but then it began to increase because they were no longer getting the high that that creates. Um, interestingly enough, the average time that somebody spends on a, a porn site is 18 seconds. Okay, so what that means is, if somebody's looking at pornography, particularly on the internet or on their phone or iPad or whatever, uh, over the course of an hour, they're visiting multiple sites over and over and over and over again. And that's part of the hook that begins to tap into kind of our neurology or biochemistry that begins to create uh, a, a connection, uh, and some would call an addiction, to chemically what's happening in our body. And it always invites more uh, more steps away from what we would call um, holy and pure sexuality, and it always erodes the relational aspect of sexuality when we get into those types of things. Um, so, a lot more to say about that. But those are my initial thoughts. You guys have others? Yeah, I have one, and I think a lot of times in our society we believe that it's only men that struggle with pornography, and what we're finding out today is there is a large part of our population of women who are now starting to struggle with pornography use. And the the thing that I'm really aware of is it is really subtle in our society. There's been a lot of movies lately released that I would say we would not think of them as pornography, but really it, it puts us on the path of pornography and movies that women have really been drawn to. And I think it definitely does exactly what Todd was saying is it objectifies people. And so we really have to be cautious and thoughtful about how we guard our hearts, our mind, our eyes, our ears, as we're thinking about the things that we're ingesting. Because once we get on those, on those steps, like Todd said, it, it just really takes us places that we're not ready to go. But I think it's really surprising to a lot of people that more and more it's women as well. Let me go to, I guess, the core of it. We don't use pornography unless we're going to masturbate typically. And even if that doesn't happen in that moment, that's where we're heading. So that becomes often we uh, call masturbation self-pleasuring because it's it's less offensive. But the truth of it is, not only are we objectifying another individual in that process, we're also idealizing that uh, what sexuality, sexual experience is. So it's no longer in the context of the real, it's virtual. So it's idealized that changes our expectation, particularly in a marriage, of what needs to happen or what should happen. And we start pushing the expectation of what 
satisfying sexual experience is. It, it, it also just begins to separate us. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns because of the expectation. If I can self-satisfy very quickly, then I don't have to do the hard work of good sexual experience with my spouse. And so it dulls that relational connection because my expectation has changed. It, it, it's idealized, let me repeat, it's idealized, it's, it heightens an expectation, and it's quick, and it, it enforces the core of sexual challenge, and that is self-absorption, satisfying or soothing self, instead of it being a we experience, a joining experience. So it really does concern me, pornography, that we're looking for cheap, quick thrill. It, it concerns me because it leads me to self-satisfaction rather than us-satisfaction, and it really challenges the community and the communion, the unity of uh, sexuality within a couple. Yeah, I think so for us, as we work with individuals and couples that are either dealing with um, you know, sexual struggles in their marriage uh, or, or pornography or other types of, of challenges in managing their sexuality, um, the filters that we think about sex in <clears throat> takes it beyond just a behavioral experience. That, that we understand, like Ron was saying earlier, that, that sex is a gift and it is sacred. It's a sacred space. It's a sacred activity that God has given to us with parameters. And almost, I think all of the gifts that God has given us only work as they are intended when we are willing to submit and walk in obedience to the parameters that he's given us. And I think scripture is clear um, that sexuality is something we have to take very seriously, um, not just in talking about, you know, what we shouldn't do or what's bad, but also discussing what do we do with our sexuality if we're, if we're saving sex for marriage, if we truly believe that God has intended sex to be between a man and a woman in marriage, um, then what do we do if we're not married? Or what do we do uh, through the teen years and adolescent years? I think that the average age of exposure currently, the average age of exposure to pornography is roughly eight years old now. Um, so that starts very, very young, shaping not only uh, visually what a child is seeing, but also what's happening in their brain and how their brain responds to something visually stimulating. So if you think about things that are, have a tendency to really stick with us or, or be more addictive, the more senses that are involved, the more strong the, uh, the, more strong the history holds on in our brains and in our memory. So if you think about issues of sex, um, you know, all the senses are involved in that. So the hooks become very, very strong um, and become very, very powerful, which is why we have to manage it, um, for, you know, take it very seriously. I think the other thing to think about, and maybe we'll talk some more about this in a little bit, is our culture certainly has placed sexuality at the top of the food chain. It's like that is the ultimate pursuit. If you want to be happy, you've got to have a great sex life. And if you want to have a great sex life, then you should be able to express yourself sexually however you want to. And um, unfortunately, that just doesn't pan out. It doesn't pan out in research. Uh, and it also doesn't pan out when we look at, as Terry was talking in the last couple of weeks, just scripturally what we see God telling us and showing us about our sexuality. So when we, when we begin to pitch sexuality into a relational level, a spiritual level, Something interesting happens. <clears throat> for one, for us as Christians, 
The goal, of, the goal of sex is not orgasm. That's a part of it. It's great when it happens. Maybe even better if it happens at the same time. But that's not the goal. That's not the end game. Because sex was meant to bring intimacy and connection in a relationship. The way that they talk about sex in the Old Testament, uh, the word there is to know. To know someone. To be known. Intimacy. In Psalms, I think they use the same word when talking about our relationship with God, to know on a deep, intimate level. Maybe, Terry, you can help me out well, there with my Hebrew. Absolutely right. Um, and, and so that shapes our picture of what this thing is and how we're supposed to manage it and how we're supposed to steward it. Um, so let me jump off of that and ask you, uh, uh, driving this question a little bit further, you, you indicated that you know this is not the path that God's called us to. But what if someone, a Christ follower, that says, I've been caught up in this, I'm wrestling with this, what are the steps, or what would be the steps you would recommend that, that people do? Where do you go from there once you find yourself in that situation, but that's not, that's not the direction you want to go? Sure. I, there's a lot of shame around that, right? And so I think there, it, it is very bold and uh, courageous to step forward and say, I've got an issue with this. So I th the first thing I would recommend is find some safe people, a safe person, safe people, to go and talk about what's going on. Because the, immediate, the thing about uh, pornography and masturbation is that it's usually done in isolation, right? It's a solitary activity. And so we get more and more separated from those that would encourage us, hold us accountable, uh, who would support us. And so the first step is to go share it with a safe person. And, and that may be a professional. It may be one of the pastors. Um, it, but it, that's where I think uh, healing begins, is the willingness to, sh to say, I've got an issue here to someone else. And then to, as that is explored, for their accountabilities to be brought in place. And it may be that uh, Celebrate Recovery, uh, a men's group or, uh, or a woman's group, because right, it's, it's a shared issue, um, one of the, to enter a counseling process, to bring accountability, to shape uh, new ways of thinking, to soften heart, to allow prayer, to become all a part of that process in the community of others. That would be my first thought. You all want to jump in? I think the one thing that we could probably agree on is just saying no isn't going to be enough. Mm -hmm. That's not going to do the job. I think that that's a great first step. But what Ron was saying, just finding community and others to walk through that struggle with is going to be far, it's going to be more strengthening than just saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore, which is great if that is the way you can walk it out is just saying no. But once again, that doesn't address the shame that, that is really tied to it at that point. You know, I grew up in church and um, one thing that was very uh, enlightening to me uh, when I discovered this thing called the 12 steps. And again, this was 30 years ago. And my first thought when someone said, have you heard of the 12 steps? I've said, yeah, but isn't that for people who drink? And they, they made real clear, well, it's, it's for all kinds of things. And, the, and what the steps, when I took a look at them and began to appreciate them, and you look at the, the from step one all the way to 12, uh, they're very biblically based. They were, they were gods before they were anybody else's. And so the thing I learned, though, about that, having grown up in church, I, I really always thought if you just pray more, if there's something going on in your life you're not happy about, you're not, you're not proud of it, you're ashamed of it, 
whatever habit or anything that's going on that's destructive. A lot of times, the, the world I kind of grew up in, and it was a good world, I'm just, I'm just saying in those, at that time, I just figured if you just pray more, pray harder, go to the altar, you know, get, get and if any of you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't grow up in church, you're probably wondering what I'm talking about. But I think there's this idea that we're just going to pray through it. Now, I don't want to underestimate the power of prayer. It's a very powerful thing. But again, what I began to see in, in that the early days of 12 Steps was for whatever the, the issue was for people, and in, in many cases early on, it, it was alcohol. They needed somebody to walk with them out of this deal that had been there before. And that was what I saw happening in a 12-step meeting that shaped what I thought the church ought to be doing because I saw people saying, I will walk with you. I've been there, and I've been set free, and it's a struggle every day. I'm still tempted, but I'm going to walk with you. You call me 24-7 if you feel tempted, and we're going to together walk this out. And I think it's a, it's, it's a shift in some of our minds. There's whatever has a, a grip on your mind or on your heart or whatever habit or destructive thing that's going on with you, you can't, again, I don't want to underestimate the power of God, the power of prayer, but you've got to, if you heard them say the word community once, if not 10 times, you've got to go with somebody through it to get out of it. It's, it's just going to take that. And, and I think it's very important. And, and again, I would, as you've said, be very, very careful who you choose because they need to be somebody you absolutely trust. And sometimes they can be a friend. Sometimes they can be a, 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 an accountability partner if you're in accountability groups, which I highly recommend, or it may be a counselor or a pastor or whatever. But, but that was one thing I, I just needed to say. It, and, and some of you may be sitting here and you're, you're, you're hooked by all this. And in the back of your mind, you think, yeah, I probably should deal with this, but you, you, you know, I'd love to encourage you to deal with it before you hit bottom with it, before something dramatically awful happens, you know, and, and then it's, you can still deal with it, but then the, the, the prices just keep getting higher. Um, and I, I just, I, I think we need to understand that we can't do this on our own. You know, just organically, what happens, what gets triggered with habitual use of pornography for sexual pleasuring, uh, there's a reason that, that many in the field call it addiction because of the neurology um, and the dopamine seek, and it's far more complicated than we want to get into tonight. But that does speak to what, what, I, yes. what you occasionally read, that this has an effect on the brain. It does. And Todd kind of referred to that as well. But. That's right. And so just to say, I'm going to pray, just more prayer, more faith, you know, all that does is continue the isolation. What's going to break that pattern is other behaviors, uh, that accountability to do something different. That's why in alcohol treatment, we go 90 meetings in 90 days. It's to establish, sure, the, the, what's being offered in the 12-step group in AA or SA, but what really, two or three things are happening there. I'm in humility changing the way I'm going to think about this. And offering myself to an accountability of the group says I'm going to engage this in a different approach behaviorally. So that breaks down that isolation, which for me uh, in my paradigm allows the Holy Spirit to start working. You know, we are not just saved from hell, we are saved into the kingdom, and kingdom inherently is community. 
And so when we are dealing with these kinds of thought patterns, uh, behavioral patterns, connection is just incredibly important to break and to change and to allow for transformation. I don't know if you guys want to jump in on that. Well, I was thinking of uh, Henry Cloud and, and John Townsend talk about how this idea that we're not born with an internal self-discipline, that we learn self-discipline first by external discipline. And then we're able to embody that and apply it on our own as we grow. And if you, if you translate that to what we're talking about, um, most of us are not going to be able to make significant behavioral changes in our life just on our own you know, grit uh, or our own will. We need the external discipline of others as well as encouragement and accountability to walk with us until we uh, attain the ability to be more disciplined in that. That's why accountability is so important. Knowing that something is wrong is a horrific strategy of trying to not do something. It doesn't work. I mean, the majority of people that we, that we work with can sit there and say, look, I know this behavior is wrong. I know it's bad. I disagree with it. I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. It keeps happening. So we've got to put other elements in place to help with some of the behavioral modifications that, that spiritual discipline, I think, calls us to, you know. I don't think there's an accident that we see these parallels between uh, the use of, you know, athletic discipline and spiritual discipline is that there's actually work and choices that we have to make if we want to experience freedom um, with our behaviors. And I don't know if this is time for this. You can say, let's come back to it. But I, 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 most of you probably are aware, and I, I want to point out, Todd is single. And a lot of people who are single say, but that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. I, I think a lot of people, well, that doesn't apply to me. And I, I think what you're hearing is words of wisdom from a single man. And, and I, want, I think that needs to be very clear for those of you that may not know that. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll go there now. Yeah, just go so. there, Todd. Just. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, my belief and the teachings of this church um, is that singleness also means celibacy for the Christian. Um, Hold on. And that's a real cost. And I think it speaks to the call to understand the sacredness of what God gives us, but also to understand the call to be holy, which means to be set apart. Which means there are going to be freedoms that as Christians, you will have to lay down. Whether you're single or married or divorced or widowed, there's a, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, there's a cost to discipleship. A true cost. And for, for me, <clears throat> You know, I was telling these guys a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, my worst nightmare was to be called to singleness. It was like, Lord, send me to some really small village with no running water and no toilets, and that'd be awesome. But please do not call me to singleness. And 10 years ago, uh, that's where I felt him leading me, not to a small village, but to stay here in Oklahoma was another part of it. It was like, please don't leave me in Oklahoma and don't call me to singleness. 
Man, you the just two lost worst things in your around. mind. Yeah. <laughs> he did both. He just lost all the way around, dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you didn't do anything to deserve that either. <laughs> I've been trying to figure that one out. I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> so that was my worst nightmare. And then God called me to that. And it made me really fail. I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. Um, I, my mother is an incredibly faithful woman, a teacher. Um, and, you know, so I had to really face what I truly believed about God in that moment. Because he basically said, here's something that's between you and me, that you desire to pursue what you want to pursue in your life more than you desire to pursue me. And this is one way that it shows up. And 10 years ago, I sensed that calling of him saying, I want you to lay down the desire and the pursuit of a wife and family. And I want you to give me all of that energy, all of that focus. Um, so the cost was real. The struggle was real. Um, celibacy is not an easy task for any of us, partly because we don't become non-sexual just because we're not married. We still have a sexuality. I still have a sexuality. <clears throat> but I also believe that my sexuality is best expressed within the confines and limits that God gives us. And Tara, I think you talked a couple weeks ago about kind of this, this cultural notion um, that freedom means no limits. And that's just not a biblical understanding of freedom. You know, a biblical understanding of freedom means that I become content and walk in obedience with the restrictions that God has given me because he's the creator and I'm the creation and his ways are far greater than mine. So when, I, when I'm willing to live in obedience, whether that's with my sexuality, whether that's with pursuit of wealth uh, or power or whatever that means, that life begins to work as he intended it. The other part of this too is, you know, I, I grew up in a, a Baptist church, and so we had the True Love, True Love Waits movement. Some of y'all might know about that. And it was basically, you know, get the teenagers to commit, you know, I'm not gonna have sex till I'm married. Um, I think, you know, was certainly the motivations were good, but it, it kind of became the equivalent of the Just Say No campaign. You know, how do we fix the drug issue in America? Just say no, simple as that. Doesn't work, doesn't work. And so I've had to fill in some gaps because one of the things that I've had to face in my own life is that I really had a sense of entitlement that because I have these desires, because I'm kind of being obedient, I'm trying to be a good Christian, I should get what I want. You know, God, it was kind of this quid pro quo relationship. God, I'll do what you tell me to do, uh, but then you have to kind of give me what I'm wanting in return, otherwise it's not worth it. Um, and, and that showed up in issues of sexuality. But what I've realized, and especially with, you know, because I work with couples, I work with individuals, um, is that oftentimes those attitudes become very destructive in marriage, especially in the context of sexuality. So if you think about some of the complications that happen between a husband and a wife, trying to work out different desires, different timings, different ideas about what's acceptable or what's fun or pleasurable in sex um, is oftentimes an area where great conflict happens. And when we deal with couples that are having conflict in sex, where we start with or where we'd like to start with is beginning to look at how can we begin with a position of humility, understanding that just because I want something doesn't mean I'm entitled to get it. And that if marriage is based on a covenant between us and God, and that God has called us to love not so that we can get things in return, but so that we can serve others, that certainly has to shape our sexuality and our, our sexuality and marriage too. I've said it before that, you know, how we manage our sexuality as single people directly impacts and shows up 
and how we manage our sexuality in marriage. Okay, so this idea that I'm single, so I'm not able to, you know, as a Christian, called the celibacy, so no sex with women, but I guess I can do porn because I've got to go somewhere with it. That entitlement doesn't go away once you're married. It just doesn't. And I think that sometimes there's this idea, and it shows up with younger people, but I think throughout the ages, or throughout the developmental stages too, that, you know, hey, my sexual issues will end once I get married because then I can have it any time I want it which is also a really bad strategy of managing your sexuality. Uh, really bad. I mean, I'm probably having more sex than a lot of marriages in our church, and I'm celibate. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's not this... Oh, wait a minute. It's, <laughs> think about it. <clears throat> so okay. it's, it's not that getting married fixes all of that stuff. We have to begin now uh, managing our sexuality in healthy ways. And I think that begins with community, as, as Ron and Cher were talking about, and understanding that God has limits there for a reason. Okay. So, and this, if this is coming up to delay, if you want to get to it later, but what immediately comes to my mind is how many of us want our, our children, think about a son or a daughter, getting married to somebody whose sexual thoughts or practices have been shaped by pornography, which sounds awful. So then I, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is when do we begin to talk to our kids? You know, mine are grown now, but, and we talked about it. I remember we had a lot of conversations about it. We read books on it. We, we, I took the boys away for a trip and, and said, we're going to talk about this while we're gone. You know? Did you learn something? I, I learned a lot. Because no, there were books available when I talked to my boys that weren't available when I was a kid. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Are you having fun? <laughs> yes, I am. So I think that's one of the, you know, when, I, when you begin to peel the onion back to some of the core issues, what do we begin to tell our kids? What, what, what can you say to young parents out there raising kids? Because those things, you said eight years old is the average when someone looks at pornography the first time. And of course, they've got these stupid things, you know. Um, what, talk, talk to us parents a little bit. Well, I'll say something real quick and I'll let the parents take over. Um, uh, Mark Laser, he's a, he's a Christian counselor, psychologist that specializes in recovery with, with couples that have been through infidelity and sexual addiction and that kind of stuff. And, and he made a very powerful statement at a conference a couple years ago. He said, if the church is not willing to define sexuality, the culture is going to do it for you. And I think that should shape how we think about parenting our kids, that it's our responsibility as Christians to begin to shape their expectations and understandings of sexuality, because somebody else is going to do it if, if you don't. You know, this is where I, I really have to say I'm blessed, and I get to brag on my dad and my mom. Um, dad wasn't afraid to talk to me about those, even as early on as, as four, you know, that people came from seeds. And, you know, of course, I... I, I never saw a people seed, where do I find one, kind of thing. Um, but, but there was kind of an open discussion, it was a very open discussion in our household about sexuality and God's design with sexuality. He did throw books at me, but he also spent time with me talking about that, as did my mom. And, um, and I really did come into marriage with a pretty good understanding um, of the differences of the genders, the expectations. Uh, sometimes it was TMI and a little, uh, you know, as, an, as a teen, I, okay, I got it, let's move on. But, but I really appreciate their openness and their desire to say, this is what healthy sexuality, and honestly, 
my mom had an eighth grade education, my dad had a high school education. They didn't know how good they were uh, and what they shared. Um, they didn't know, I think, just how um, uh, sophisticated they were spiritually in what they, were, what they gave to both my, my brother and myself. And so that really set a pace for our kids. Um, now, our kids are, are children of two therapists. You know, my wife, Kim, is also a therapist. Uh, and so, you know, we brought a lot of experimental, you know, approaches. Growing up being analyzed. Uh, that's right. Oh. Yeah, we, don't have a, we didn't have a college fund. We had a therapy fund for them to, to undo. Uh, but but we, we decided early on that we wanted to be very open ar around God's design of sexuality. And so even early as, I don't know, four or five, they're watching TV and hearing in the 80s, late 80s about the AIDS epidemic. So what is homosexual? What is gay? We're, we're conversations. You can't filter everything so your kid doesn't hear something on, on TV or, or the media. Now with um, smartphones, you know, they're inundated. So we need to be prepared to, and, and like you said, we need to shape that, not allow the culture to shape that. So it has to be proactive. Uh, and again, I want to reach into the meta. I want to feel the sacred of God in sexuality and offer that sacred in everything that I'm communicating around sexuality. But they're watching me, they're watching Kim, they're watching our marriage to understand what intimacy is um, because sexual intimacy isn't intercourse. Sexual intimacy is the way we touch, the way we uh, hold hands, the way we communicate, the soft words, the round words. All that is sexuality and sexual stewardship. And so they understand based on what they get to watch. And I hope they're watching the sacred space uh, that is between husband and wife. I think that's really important to remember when we're de developing our kids' sense of their own sexuality. Maybe you've got some stuff to add. I, the one thing I was going to add is um, one of the, the questions I think that, that you're asking about is when is it appropriate to begin this conversation? And I would say immediately. And it's just, you know, by what, what are their body parts called? Are we going to teach them some body part lingo that makes them feel more ashamed of their body part? But the other piece that I think that we have to think about, too, is how are we having those conversations? Are we having those conversations where we are really uncomfortable and we're just um, conveying our shame and our awkwardness about it? Which I was not raised in a home like Ron. We weren't talking about it openly. So that has been a real battle to figure out how do I do this? And I will say I give myself about a C with my own kids because it's, it's a struggle, but it's all about we do it. We, we talk about this, this meta of it is God's design and it's a great gift and we have to treat it as a gift. We have to treat it as something special. And that really comes from just the beginning of how we're talking about it. But definitely, it's, it's not, you know, we have to start talking about the sexual act when they're born, but we start teaching them about their sexual body parts. And we don't slap their hands when they touch their body parts. We, we say, oh, does that feel good? Okay, well then, that's, let me explain to you why. And we just start educating them about that God designed their body this way and it's good. Not that it's something to be ashamed of. Now, we need to teach them you know, proper ways to cover their bodies and the moments when it's appropriate and inappropriate. But we, we have to be just educating them all the time about your body's good. God designed it this way. I remember Nicholas was just learning to talk and we were teaching body parts. 
and his Nana had him for the weekend and she gave him a bath and she's patting him down and he's, he said, look, Nana, I've got a penis and you got a bugina. And, you know, I don't know that Dalit dropped him, but it was close. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we did start out with proper body parts and, and it was nothing to be ashamed of. It was something to manage. And I think, just like you said, modesty becomes a part of that lesson. When is this appropriate and when do we need... Uh, to, to encourage privacy and what does privacy mean and what do private touches mean and so that just all lays out so maybe we're going places we don't need to right now well I mean I'm going to ramp it up and say these should never be allowed in their rooms by themselves <laughs> leave them downstairs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our kids we had one computer it was out in the kitchen it's the only one you had it's the only one you could use you didn't take it to your room you didn't have it in your room that is so unpopular I mean there are parents right now thinking you're nuts and I guarantee you, you t talk to the youth about that I said that, they're going to think I'm even more nuts. They're going to want to change churches. I mean, this is so unpopular. But how hard are we willing to work to protect our kids from an enemy they don't understand? There are adults that need to get rid of their smartphones. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And go, I don't know what the technology is, a flip phone if they still have flip them. Flip phones but, are yeah. good. Well, let me uh, summarize what I'm hearing. Uh, Laura and I, one of our sons, recently got married. So what I'm kind of hearing you say is, it's okay to go ahead and talk to him now. You feel like Now's a great time, absolutely. You're good now. Okay, we'll do that. Let me switch and ask you a question that's been asked several times, and I'm going to phrase it. The, just You can rephrase this if you want, but this is a very practical question. Let's go back to, the, to marriage that you've touched on, the idea of sexuality in marriage. Here, here's a question the way it's worded often. My wife doesn't want to have sex as often as I do. What can we do? How should we deal with that? Some practical advice for couples? Go for it, Sherry. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on that question a little bit because, yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> Cowards. No. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> no, go for yeah. it. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to expand a little bit on that because I think that there's also the um, experiences that people have where, I mean, like Todd said, there's some married folks that are having sex less than him. And so to... Just to clarify five, what that meant. Zero. Less than zero. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, so to talk about why is, hap why is this happening, you know, Todd was talking about scripture, talks about um, sexuality as to know one another. So what is going on in the relationship? Is there something going on in the relationship that really needs some attention? The other thing that I think about is for women or men, either one, are there physical issues going on? Is sex painful? Is it uncomfortable because of sexual history in the past. And what I mean when I say uncomfortable, emotionally. Uh, is there um, incest? Is there sexual abuse? Is there just sexual experiences that have really hurt um, emotionally and physically? One of you, both of you. And those things need to be addressed. And, and if it's somewhere in the relationship, the quality of the relationship, the attachment or connection, if that needs to be attended to for s sexual um, intimacy to begin again or to happen more often, then that's something to definitely address together, but to seek counsel through that. And so to more specifically then answer um, the question that was asked, if, if rhythm is off, if timing is off, that happens. Everybody has those uh, different needs. 
So the way to address it is just to say, what are they? What are yours? What are mine? And how can we manage this together? People aren't going to be in the mood at the exact same time every time. So what do we need to do to help that? Are there um, things that that I as a spouse need to do or the things that you as a spouse needs to do. One of my favorite books is by Kevin Lehman's Sex Begins in the Kitchen, which can be really misconstrued in a lot of ways, but... <laughs> like how? Like... <laughs> I'm sorry, my child is in the audience. I can't answer that. <laughs> no. Are you transparent about it? I mean, your kid's sitting here. Talk yeah. about it. So. Um, <clears throat> what what the, the premise of that book really is, is that... It's about the, the quality of relationship. It's about the, the loving touches in the kitchen. It's about the waking up to one another and saying good morning and being kind and using gentle words. It's about how do I approach you about sex? Am I feeling um, that entitlement that I deserve it? Doggone it, we're married, you owe it to me. Well, gosh, that's not very inviting. So we have to address and look at what is going on and that makes it pretty complex. But I think it's worth it. It's just we have to give the attention that's necessary to that. It always concerns me when sex becomes a point of competition because anytime we're competing, we've got a power dynamic cooking. And nothing breaks down unity that I think we're called to scripturally as couples uh, than for power dynamics. Whether we have an agenda about money or the way furniture is set or the way we parent, and when it goes to competition around our sexual intimacy, uh, man, it is so damaging to that, that unity that God has called us to. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is a verse that we build our entire uh, marital ministry. Uh, and I, won't, I, I could break it down and talk an hour on that passage. Um, but the core of that passage is, in humility, I seek unity. In humility, I seek unity. And sexuality, our shared sexual intimacy, is such a telltale of the unity that we're either experiencing or we are avoiding, that we are competing over or we are collaborating. And those, are, those two C words, compete and collaborate, as it applies to sexual stewardship, to the sexual sacred between a couple, um, is so core, is so core. Well, I, you know, in, in Ephesians, before it says submit, it, it, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I, I think it's about a, a, a mentality of serving one another. How can, I, how can we serve one another? And, and I think it's, uh, it, once we find out how, I mean, I want to know how, I've always, you know, back when Kim and I first married or when the kids were little, how can I, how can I serve this woman? What's meaningful? I remember I read once that if, that uh, men bathing the children was a real turn-on for the women, you know, so I'd go home and yank the kids out of bed and bathe them, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, whatever it took. But I mean, are you okay? I want to go somewhere and I, I know, know I can't. You can't, you can't. I just I, can't. I teed it up, but you can't yeah, swing I, the No, club. I'm just, All right. so, so. So frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't do that, but in other words, just in, in, there's, there's this huge component, I think that's what you all been saying, to how we re relate to each other and how we serve one another and how we love each other before we ever get to the bedroom. And it has a huge impact on that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, just practically speaking, um, you know, one of the things I've noticed with couples, that the majority of couples 
only talk about sex when somebody wants it. That's like the extent of their discussion about their sex life. It only comes up when somebody's pursuing or somebody's resisting. Um, again, that's another bad strategy because communication is such a significant part of getting on the same page in your sex life. You need to be talking about sex when you're not turned on. You need to be talking about sex when it's not the, the right time um, so that you can get a better understanding of where the other person's coming from. And that helps later on. You know, the fruit of that later is being able to connect on a deeper level and getting in sync with each other. But we have to be intentional about those conversations because it doesn't come naturally to us, I think. One thing, just before we leave that topic, Marty, I, I remember at one time when you and Kim uh, were doing a session together here, and he was talking about marriage, and I'm going to get this wrong, and that's why I want to throw it to you to, to quote this right. You, one of you talked about, probably both of you, about working, always working for your marriage. I think you're talking about competing with one another or the conflicts, but I always remember you're working for your marriage, and I wonder that seems to apply to this situation. Well, you've got to fight for your, I mean, to me, a marriage, you've got to, you've got to have two people willing to fight for it. And if, and if you have just one person fighting for it and another one's too passive or doesn't know how to fight for it and then doesn't want to learn how to fight for it, you've, you've got to, it just compounds it. But you have to have two people who, number one, want to fight for it, and number two, will learn what that means. And, and it, it still amazes me the people who, who will just think they don't need good counsel, that they need good advice in, in, in a number of areas of their life. Uh, and, and so you see people that, that they know they need something, and what they need to do is learn how to fight for the marriage, and they, they don't want to go find out how. How do I do that? What's that look like? Right. One of the things that we say frequently to couples is, does this serve the we? Or is it serving the me? Because frequently, especially around sexuality, we're only seeking to serve the me. And if we start asking that question of, does this serve the we? That, that kind of changes it a little bit. How are we in our marriage? I, I just want to say this one more time. How does our sexual intimacy touch into the sacred and pull it into this sacred space between us? And, and if, I think if we just, <clears throat> for you couples, if you just focus on how, on that one question individually, how is this honoring the sacred between us? Uh, I think that becomes a paradigm shift that may open a lot of doors for good conversation. And sometimes those need to be guided with good counsel. But uh, I just so strongly advocate for that. And, and I would say for, <clears throat> for those that are single, um, don't wait until you get married to learn how to serve. Don't wait till you get married to learn how to listen. Uh, that starts today. I mean, if you want a healthy sex life in your marriage, if you want a healthy marriage, um, that starts today. So learn what it means to serve other people. Learn what it means to receive a no. Learn what it means to not be able to experience everything that you wanted and not hold a grudge or hold it over other people. You can start that now. Uh, you don't have to wait till you find one or until you get married. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to touch on something that's a bigger topic, and we don't have time to explore it all. But let me just tell you a thread that I'm hearing through all of this. When we talked about pornography, you talked about this is not something that you grit your teeth and just struggle with all by yourself. It takes the community, it takes the openness to say, I want to go this direction, and I need somebody to walk with me in that direction. We talked about 
uh, celibacy in singleness and the idea there that it's just say no, I'm going to grit my teeth and do this. It's that community. We're going to be accountable. We're going to walk with each other. We talked about marriage. It's not enough to just sit and fume and say, my sexual needs aren't being met. We're going to talk. We're going to fight. You see this concept, and I know that we all have, we have all talked about this on our pastoral staff, a real heart to make sure people are not struggling by themselves with this. The church is a place where we can be open. The fact that you're having this conversation is, is this is something we want to be open about. We want to be a place where we can together walk towards sacrificing whatever our issues are to God. There's one more, though, that I know you all have a heart for, and uh, let me just specifically talk about this church for a minute. I know a lot of people will see this online, but talk about this church is the issue of celibacy also applies to those who struggle with the same-sex attraction. And that's a situation where people say, we've talked about the cultural narrative, but we've also talked about God's call, and there are people who say, I have these feelings that I want to surrender to God, and that means celibacy. And I think our heart hurts a little bit that is this, can this, how can this be a place where that's not a lonely struggle? I know that's a big deal to you. And maybe just share a little bit about what's our vision at this church for, for people in any of these situations to be able to honestly and openly walk together. And, and how long do I have? Yeah. <laughs> you got a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, when, when uh, we began talking about, we've been talking about how do we address some of these, the key issues, certainly homosexuality, same-sex attraction, those kinds of things. We've been talking about that for a while. I've been, you know, I've been collecting files and books and articles and reading things for years because I knew the day would come, you know, it would, it would be on the top of our minds. And all along, I think we've got to have truth. You've got to have biblical truth. So what, what does the Bible say? And then secondly, though, you've got to have a church that will be compassionate. I, I, I never wanted to get, um, I, I've always dreamed of a church, and I believe that's what we are, a church that is great compassion. And I don't ever want to mark anybody off uh, because they struggle with one thing. I'm, I'm sitting here tonight, I'm, I'm thinking, boy, there's bound to be in a, in a crowd, you know, statistically, there are a number of people sitting here who were sexually abused as a child, you know. My heart breaks for that. And so, for example, to you all, I would say, please know that this is a place of great compassion that wants to walk with you through those situations. Uh, a, a, a while ago when Todd uh, very passionately and emotionally described that God had called him to celibacy, I wish every youth group in the country could hear that. I wish every middle schooler could hear that. I wish, I wish people could hear this, uh, th this incredible man over here talk about what biblically he believes was his only option and is, is living it. And, and helped us understand that there are things, there's a cost to following Christ. And so I, I just, I've always just prayed we would be a church of great compassion. You, you can have firm beliefs, you have firm convictions and beliefs, but I don't ever want to lose the compassion for, toward those who are struggling with it at any given moment, and some are winning the battle and some aren't. But let's never give them any reason to believe we're going to give up on them. Somehow we're going to walk with them, and we're going to stick with them. We're going to love them. And some, there'll be people who won't agree with us. You don't have to agree with us to come to this church at all. 
but we, we want to have an understanding about where we're coming from biblically and have a mutual respect there and then respond to each other with great care and compassion. Well said. Well, our, a lot more can be said, and I know that these folks are kind of accessible, but let me summarize and say, I'm going to tell you what I've heard. I've heard that we believe that God calls us to surrender our sexuality along with anything else to him. And whether that might be for those here struggling with the pornography, it might be struggling with sexuality in our marriage, it may be struggling with celibacy as single, it may be struggling with a same-sex attraction, it may be struggling with any number of, of the issues of sexuality in our culture, but that desire to surrender that to God, this is a place, God calls his church to be a place where we can be open and talk to each other about it with great compassion and care, hold each other accountable and lift and pick each other up on the way. That's an open invitation at this church. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll continue our conversation next time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your call to us to be holy, that you give us the call to be happy by submitting to your word. Father, you turn the whole world upside down and the world promises happiness without limits and you promise that you will make us whole if we will simply surrender ourselves to you. Through Jesus Christ, you've made that possible and through your church, you've made that very doable and we thank you for that. I thank you for this place and this group of believers. I thank you, Father, for the community that we have with one another. I pray for everyone in this audience who is wrestling with whatever issue it is we need to lay at the foot of the cross. Give us the courage to do it. Give us the faith to do it. And Father, may we be the place that picks each other up and walks with each other. In the name of Jesus Christ, who strengthens us and through whom all things are possible, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you to our panel this evening. Thank you, guys.